This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. In our family groups, we want people to feel seen and heard and known and loved. And we want, we want to really, really accentuate the power of story. And in fact, we want there to be gospel-saturated stories all throughout Commonwealth City Church. It's easy to get in kind of the rhythm of understanding how Sundays or churchy moments, if we want to call them that, really, you know, are part of our story. But we really hope, we really hope that you are practicing the language of the gospel. So think of it as a fluency issue. You're practicing the language of the gospel Not just in your Bible studies or on Sunday mornings when we're together and singing and worshiping, but you're practicing the fluency, your fluency in the gospel in everyday life with people in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your family groups. And so we want to really look to the word of God for more of these gospel saturated stories to model how the word of God is is revealed in stories in the Bible, but also in our own stories, the presence of God's revealed in our own stories. So we're going to be starting in the book of Jonah. We're going to be doing a bunch of kind of character studies, character stories through the Old Testament, through really the entirety of the word of God this semester. But we're not just going to be telling the story. Like it would be easy to just get up here and tell the story about the dude that got swallowed by a fish, right? Like everybody knows that part of Jonah, but we're going to really be dedicated to preaching the whole book. And it's a short book. It's only four chapters. We're going to knock out almost one of those today. Um, but we really want to give you the context of who Jonah is and, and how God is, was so involved in his saga and so involved in his life um, that it applies to us. We've been talking about walking in identity here at Com City for the past month, about what it means to be made as a family of God through the work, through the love of our Father, what it means to be sent on mission as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and what it means to, to serve our King Jesus. And if I'm honest, Jonah stinks at all three of those things. In fact, he is maybe the worst messenger or the worst prophet in the Bible. He does the exact opposite of what God tells him to do. And we're going to see that today in the text. And so we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be 1 through 16. It'll be on the screen. But I invite you to stand with me as we read the word of the Lord this morning. Behold the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and, and to flee to Tarshish from the presence of God. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will, will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us whose account this evil has come, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? 
And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men who were exceedingly afraid said to him, what is this you have done? For they knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They then said to him, what shall we do with you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for today. We thank you for the truth of your word um, and the story of Jonah. We pray that today that you form us to be people who recognize grace and are sent by grace, who recognize your sovereignty, who exist willingly submissive to it, um, who recognize what it means to respond to your word. Lord, make us people that are eager to respond in obedience to your word. Uh, Jesus, we pray today that your spirit speak a greater sermon, a second sermon that impacts the hearts of every, everyone here today, whether they believe in you or yet to believe. Um, Lord, I pray that they see you as beautiful. pray that they see you as gracious. pray that they see you as one deserving of glory. Lord, we honor you in this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. So most prophetic books are written as a message of, of a message came to the prophet and the prophet stated these things to the people of God. If you read most of the prophetic books in the Bible, these are messages that God gave to his own people. You with me? But Jonah is a prophetic story that's a little different. It actually displays God's character, his mercy and grace, not just for his people, but from his people. The whole the whole theme of Jonah is not about Jonah giving a warning to the people of God, but Jonah actually going to another nation. It's really, Jonah's really one of not just the first prophets, but one of the first missionaries we see really evidently in the scriptures that he was to take a message of who God was and of, and of repentance to another people. Jonah was the evidence that in Genesis chapter 12, when God made a covenant with a guy named Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. In fact, many nations. And, and, and they're going to be my people. And I'm going to be their God. I'm going to be your God. And, and you're, going to, you're going to have more generations that follow you than numbers the grain of sand. But I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you might in turn be a blessing to the entire world. And, and what God is calling out in Jonah is a... Uh, the promise kept that he intended for the people of God to bless the entire world and the segment specifically of the entire world that he was honing in on this message of grace and peace was that of Nineveh. Jonah was the first prophet that we have of in the Bible sent entirely to another nation. Now there's a lot of applications about the book of Jonah. In fact, we could preach five different sermons just on the first chapter 
alone. There's a lot of places that it there's a lot of places that it intersects with even the current kind of cultural dynamic we live in. We could talk about Jonah loving his neighbor and and understanding that when the Bible talks about neighbor, it doesn't mean people that look, think and act and believe the same things you do. It in fact, just like Jesus and the Samaritan story infers that neighbor means people from different backgrounds, different races, different religions online. We could easily go with that application today. We could easily acknowledge specifically as injustices are more visible in our society, in our culture than ever before, whether it's racial oppression or sex trafficking or or poverty needs, that, that Jonah's story really applies to what it means to go across the barrier, kind of across the comfort zone and to impact people where they are. In fact, in the story of Jonah, God is desiring to send his man, Jonah, across the obstacle of race and religion and comfort to be someone that meets the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, with the gospel. He sends Jonah from his friends to his foes. But before we talk today about where grace should take you, and listen, grace should take you lots of places. It should. Grace should take you to meet lots of scenarios and to confront lots of places of conflict. It should. But before we talk about where grace takes you. We have to talk about why grace should send you. Because forgive a little bit of the cheesiness here, grace truly is pretty amazing. Jonah is a book that showcases how much the character of God loves to show mercy, loves to offer grace, and loves and longs to save people. God loves to save people. So today we're going to look at three parts of this Jonah story. Not going to be on the screen, so you're just going to, have to go on with me here. Three parts. The first one's going to be a grace that sins. A second one's going to be a grace that's sovereign. Talk about that word. And then the third is going to be a responding, how we respond to the word of the Lord. So I want to revisit Jonah 1, 1 through 3. It's just to remind us, it says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But we know instead he rose and fled to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Let's get a little background of what's going on here. Nineveh is the city that's kind of the the main focal city of the Syrian empire. In fact, it's a city known of its power and of its conquest. It's also a city known for how how brutal it is. Like this is a city infamous for its brutality. And by that I mean they were um, kind of the pace setters in execution. Uh, even, some, even some scholars think that, that the Assyrians invented crucifixions and the Romans perfected crucifixion. That, that the way that they handled um, enemies of their state or enemies of their kingdom was extremely brutal. There were tons of legends and, and lore about the triumph and their torture of their enemies. And Jonah would absolutely know about these things. Jonah was uh, an already a pretty well-known character in the Bible. Now, when you think of the name Jonah, you probably assume, I assume you think immediately of the large fish that swallows him up. But if you were a, a Jewish uh, scholar or a Jewish student, when you heard the word Jonah, you would know that he was mentioned a couple different places. In fact, we first see Judah on the, or Jonah on the scene in, in Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14, where he is serving in the court of Jeroboam II. He's somebody that's already doing stuff. He's already a proud citizen and a proud leader among the Hebrew people, among the nation, the people of Israel. 
Not only did he appear in the Old Testament before his prophetic book, but he also was alluded to by Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus compares himself to Jonah. We're going to see that come to life a little bit more. So in the Bible, Jonah is not a stranger. He's not a one-time um, character that's only talked about in, in this short little book of, of the minor prophets. Um, he is not a stranger at all. And not only is he not a stranger in the Bible, he's not a stranger to the grace of God. Jonah feared the Lord. He said it multiple times. He feared the Lord, which means that he knew him well. And here's what's crazy. Because Jonah knew the work of the Father so well, that's precisely why he ran the other way. We come to learn more about Jonah's heart in this matter as we unpack the rest of this short narrative. But the point isn't to skip to the end. If you're one of those people that when you read a book, you automatically go to like the final chapter, like shame on you. Jonah's not for you if that's what you do. If you're one of those people that read the end first, you're supposed to read verses one through three here and say, why on earth would Jonah not follow the Lord? Why on earth would he be trying to flee and run away from the presence of God? Why on earth, when the word came to Jonah, would he be disobedient? You're supposed to ask that question. And it's easy with that being the opening argument or the opening you know, question that we are met with in this chapter. It's easy to immediately paint Jonah as the bad guy, right? Disobedient to the Lord, not doing what God. And we also might put ourselves in the story and be like, we would never, you know, like, I sure would never do that if God met me with the word. I would automatically be obedient. Would we? We'll see. The story of Jonah. We have to understand the story of God's grace. So we're going to talk for a moment about the magnitude of the grace of God. Probably the best place that for me that my like catch-all go-to uh, chapter about the grace of God is actually not in the Old Testament. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's writing to uh, new believers in, in what is now the nation of Turkey or around the nation of Turkey, Ephesus, the people of Ephesus. And he is speaking to them who have now come to know the good news of Jesus. They're Gentiles. They weren't raised in the things of the Lord. They've come to know the good news of Jesus. And he says to them, you believers, you faithful ones in Ephesus, it is by grace that you've been saved. It's through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not because of works so that no one can boast. You see, you and I have been saved by no merits of our own. None. We didn't earn it. And I love those national treasure movies and, and shout out Nick Cage. You know, I mean, who doesn't love a good Nicholas Cage movie? Um, I love those national treasure movies, and they're like the perfect mashup for me because I love history as well. So it's like, you know, you've got all this hidden treasure that's completely fictionalized and made up through like the Library of Congress and the White House and all these, you know, really well-known historical places in the United States. And part of me like believes it still could be true. It's like, I want to go and take off the leg of the residue desk in the Oval Office and like see if there's a treasure map there. But but if we're not careful, sometimes I think we'll look at salvation as if it's a, it's a, a thing that we have to have the map toward and like get all the right clues and, and all the right understanding. We're not given a treasure map and told to find salvation. We're not given a treasure map and told to find grace from God. We didn't discover it as if we were explorers. We were, as the author of Ephesians, as Paul himself would say, we were gifted it. It's not Andrew's words, those are the Bible's words. I found it and you didn't would be a very boastful thing, but we're not, we don't have the testimony of boast because we didn't find it at someone else's lack. Like we were gifted it because of the work of Jesus. Grace is not what we found. Grace is what found us. Grace is what found me 
And it's what found you. And because it found me, I hope it finds others as well. I must display and extend to other people exactly what was displayed and extended to me. But before we can really understand God's grace and the gift that it is, we have to understand another word that's sometimes difficult to talk about and difficult to preach on, and that's called God's wrath. Now, if you're a Bible trivia, you know, fan in the room, you might know that God has a history with wicked cities, doesn't he? If you were to go back to Genesis again and look at cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he certainly had a history with them. What was that history? He incinerated them because of their wickedness. In fact, the same phrase that their evil has been brought before him was used for Sodom and Gomorrah was also used for Nineveh in his message to Jonah. God saw the wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah and incinerated the cities. God saw the wickedness of the world. And maybe uh, a good allusion to today's massive amount of rain flooded it, right? And we know he's not going to do that again. It's promised to never do that again. But, but I always, in some parts of, of me, like, am confused when I see, when I go to churches and I'll go to like their kids, kids area and I'll see like a mural of Noah's Ark on the wall. And I'm like, it's kind of a tragic story. I mean, it's, you know, it's cool that all the, the two animals look like cartoon characters in this mural on the wall, but every other animal on the planet is dead unless it can swim or float. You know, also all the humans, like all the other humans that are on the planet are also drowning. And like, this is a pretty, this is a pretty like sobering, tragic event that happened in response to the wickedness of people. And as I even say that, some of y'all are like, no, we don't have a God that would do that. We don't have a God that hates sin that much. You know, he was going to spare Nineveh. He doesn't do that to us. He doesn't do that to Las Vegas, the literally the city of sin, right? He doesn't do that to these places. He doesn't do that to, to, you know, the University of Louisville, because they're not as good at sports. Like he, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't do that anymore. Do we read the, the story of Jonah through the lens of God matured, and so he wanted to spare Nineveh? Do we read the story of Jonah to where like God grew up from his toddler temper tantrums that got him really mad at places like Sodom and Gomorrah and the world when Noah was around? No, no, like God didn't mature or he didn't grow up to a different attitude towards sin. He still has the exact same heart towards sin today than he did towards the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their wickedness and their evil. Do you believe that? You might be like, ah, well, why isn't he like burning things to the ground anymore? Like, why isn't he a hostile, angry God? Why don't we see God destroying things because of his wrath? You might ask that question. That's a fair question to ask. But I'm here to tell you that the thing that is the most visible that God was willing to crush because of his wrath wasn't a city, wasn't a, wasn't a, through a flood. The place, the thing that God destroys because of his wrath, we don't see the evidence of that in natural disasters or global pandemics. Do you want to know what evidence we have that God is still in the business of crushing things because of his wrath, we have a cross and an empty tomb. Because we have a cross of Jesus Christ, we can be confident that God's wrath still burns against sin. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus is, instead of it incinerating cities, and instead of it drowning out everyone on the globe, it was pleased to crush Jesus. And Jesus wasn't some 
you know, just participant of child abuse in this saga, Jesus was willing to embrace and endure the joy set before him to be crushed so that we might be restored to a right relationship with our Father. And so if you want the evidence of how God feels about sin, I don't want you to look in Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah. I want you to look at Calvary at the cross of Christ. That's how God feels about sin, is that he was willing to crush his own son for our relationship and for our salvation and for our good. In fact, in fact, Jesus tells this story sitting in a a religious leader's home where he's sitting across the table from a religious leader and yet there's a prostitute there that's sitting on the ground at his feet washing his feet with her hair and they start to have a discussion and if you're anything like me and you've been in conversations with people and it's obvious they're paying attention to something else, I don't know how you would avoid a lady, like, first of all, I don't see many people washing anyone's feet with their hair, so that's kind of weird for me, just outright. I don't know how you would avoid that happening in the conversation. And at some point, Jesus, just to acknowledge the elephant in the room, I guess, tells a story on who has been loved, who loves the most, someone that's been forgiven little or someone that's been forgiven much. And he explains, parallels it to the lady at his feet, that because she has been forgiven much, she also loves much. And for us to be great people of understanding being sent by the grace of God, it requires our understanding of what the wrath of God came to destroy. And for us to understand the depth of our forgiveness was that it cost Jesus his life. We have been forgiven much and don't have to pay for it because of the wonderful gift of grace, as Ephesians would say, that was gifted to us so that everyone and anyone in the world who might believe would also receive the wonderful gift of grace. So to ask, to explain that about grace, you with me? To explain that about God's grace and his wrath being satisfied in Christ, what could possibly be offensive to Jonah about that, that he would want to run the other way from the people of Nineveh? What could possibly be offensive to him about it? Do you think you understand the God of grace? Well, then let me ask you this question. We're going we're gonna to mine a little deep here today. We, we say it's easy to vil, vilify Jonah in this story, but we're going to mine a little deep in our own hearts. How eager are you for sinners to be loved and accepted by God? Now, most of you are like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, that's why we do this thing. Okay, we're going to take it to the next level. What about the ones that have hurt you? What about the ones, what about the sinners in this world whose choices or whose abandonment have hurt and harmed you? How eager are you for them to be loved and accepted by God? What about the people whose sin affects you, whose sin stirs you up? How much are you for them to be loved and accepted by God? Or or another way, Is there anyone that comes to mind that you hope they get what they deserve? Think about that question a little bit. Like over these past few months, gosh, our social media has been overwhelmed with tons of different things that that generate a ton of emotions in all of us, right? All of us. And unfortunately, because everything's on video today, like we've gotten to see super exposed and revealed video and and testimony of people that say and do horrendously monstrous things towards other people because they don't have the same skin color? Because they didn't come from the same background? Because they're not born from the same country? Like, 
We get to see this. And it's not just an American problem. This is a global problem. This happens all over the planet. We get to see this. I mean, there are entire, there's an entire people group. Kurt reminds me of it often. There's an entire people group in countries like India that, that literally can't be in the same room with, some, with another fellow countryman or woman because of a caste system. Like if, if they use a cup, it's immediately broken so that no one else can touch, can touch it. Like these things are true in our world. And if I'm not careful, I will look at people that are, that are bigoted or racist or, or people that I think are attacking or assailing the image of God. And I will say, I want you to get what you deserve. But if I say that, Am I not more, a little bit more like Jonah in the story? Of not wanting Nineveh to get the grace, but wanting them to get judgment? So is there anyone that you know in your life that you actually want them to get judgment? I want to be clear. I do think our sin has earthly consequences. I'm not saying you don't want those earthly consequences to happen. People are allowed to, to face um, legal ramifications and whatnot for, for their for their actions. It's totally that's totally okay, but that you actually would have a harder time saying, "Gosh, I don't know if I do want them to be loved and accepted by God." If that's true, if that's true, then grace probably hasn't reached as deep in you as the Lord would want it to. Now, I'm not saying that to be condemning to you or to me. I'm saying that to to tutor us into understanding the fullness of the reach of the grace of God. And if today, when I ask those questions, are there people that have hurt or harmed you or somebody you love that you actually aren't eager to experience grace in Jesus? I say that today so that in our hearts, we can pause. We can confess that. And we can repent before a holy God that like, we do long for people to know the grace of our Father. One of, the, uh, one, of the re- one of the things we were talking about with God's grace and God's mercy earlier is that when we rightly understand that instead of burning new Sodom and Gomorrah to the ground, that God put the fullness of his wrath on Jesus, is that it offers us the reminder that we can know dad a different way. Like if dad, our heavenly dad, our heavenly father, if dad was always mad at sin, then he would have a hard time delighting over us. But if he pours out the satisfaction of that anger on sin and the wrath on sin on Jesus, then he can only, only delight and posture himself in a posture of delight and desire over us. And so I say the same to you. Are there people in our life that we have a hard time saying, I wish you knew dad like I do? And if there are, then let's do what Jonah took too long to do which is repent and confess and turn our hearts to a greater understanding of his grace. So that's part one, grace that sins. Part two is grace that's sovereign. We see Jonah picking up here in verse four in the middle of this storm that's being hurled on them. And where do we find Jonah? What is he doing? He's asleep. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. And here's the reality. Apathy always sleeps. It slumbers. It it thinks to itself, I don't make a difference. Have you ever thought that? I don't know if I really make a difference in the world. I don't know if my actions really matter. I know that what the, the butterfly effect that people talk about is like the, the, the flap of a butterfly's wings affect the, the winds of the world or whatnot. Like, I don't really believe that's to be true. Well, if you've ever wondered if your lives make a difference, don't listen to me give you a motivational speech. Look at Jonah. His disobedience literally caused the storm. 
His disobedience caused a storm, and the, the people that it affected the most weren't even Jonah. It was, these, it was these sailors and these mariners who were on the boat and completely caught off guard by a, by a, diso, by a response to disobedience that they didn't even ask for. In fact, that begs another question. Has someone's sin or your sin ever created a storm in your life? Not every storm is the, is, is, occurs because of sin, but every sin will always have a storm that comes with it. Not every storm happens because of sin, but every sin will always bring a storm with it. But, but what's the good news in the midst of the storm? Does the storm brought on, whether it's brought on by someone else's disobedience, our own, or whether it's brought on by the Lord to, to use to reveal and accomplish something that's deep and in need in our hearts because he does that, What's the good news? It never nullifies the plan of God in our life. Our story is just like Jonah's. No matter what storm we face, the plan of God is not nullified and it's not gone void when it comes to us. I love in verse 3 where uh, Jonah's story says that he went away from the presence of the God. That's almost like a smirking statement because it's clear that with the storm in the midst of his ship, God's presence wasn't away from him. And in fact, not only wasn't God's, was God's presence not away from Jonah, but it was still sovereign over Jonah's even disobedience. Check this part out in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. You see that in verse 5? Um, little lowercase g, God. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. And it's the general usage of the word God. It can also be used, used plurally with, with many gods. But if you look down at verse 15, verse 15 and 16. It says this, so they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men, the mariners, the, the sailors, who previously had prayed to their little God, feared who? The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the Hebrew word of Yahweh. Feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to him and made vows. Do you know what this story tells you in these 10 verses? That these sailors were converted in the midst of Jonah's disobedient actions, that God was still sovereign to even still save these sailors, even though Jonah diverted from the plan of God, God still saw fit to use his disobedience in a way that saved these sailors from their sin, that they came to know to fear the living God. That's such good news for us because we don't ever get to thwart the plan and the purpose of what God wants to accomplish in the world. And check this part out. You want to know something even cooler? Check this part out. These sailors got to see what? They got to see the sacrifice of one man calm the storm and save the many. And we get to see the sacrifice of one man calm the storm of all sin and save the world, the, those that would believe. We get to see the story of Jonah be an echo of the person of Jesus that shows up a little bit later in the narrative of the scripture. And if you think about it, these sailors will tell the story of Jonah, not because they were divinely saved on a ship, but because they were divinely saved by a savior God for the rest of their life. So Jonah is also a story of contrast. He was an unwilling vessel for God's mercy, and yet God still accomplished mercy and grace through the disobedience of Jonah. He was asleep, he was apathetic, he was avoidant, and he was disobedient. But here's something else for today. Not everyone is an unwilling vessel. Aren't there people 
that God uses, not in spite of their disobedience, but actually from their obedience. So I want to turn the corner with this part today. Do you have people in your life that God has used purposefully, divinely, intentionally in your life because they said yes to the call of God? I'm sure you can think of a few. When I took a youth pastor position in Bowling Green, Kentucky in 2009, I showed up and, and was trying to recruit people to volunteer in our student ministry because it was a larger church and we needed some good volunteers. And I ran across a man named Jerry Hemming. I met Jerry and the first time I met him, it felt like a fam family reunion. Do you want to know why it felt like a family reunion? Because Jerry had been praying for me from the day he got my name. Every single day, Jerry had prayed for me. And when we came into contact with one another, it's like I was talking to somebody that also knew me. Do you want to know why? Because he'd spent time with the father who did know me. And he'd been praying for me. And he loved me. And Jerry didn't stop praying for me when we met as if like mission accomplished. That guy continued to pray for me. In fact, he was so incessantly annoying about ways he could pray for me and for our student ministry that he would text me. If that didn't work, he would call me. If that didn't work, he would email me. If that didn't work, he would call the church office and say, I need to leave a message for Andrew. He was so committed and diligent to praying the things that, were ma that mattered to my life that he would get in the way to do it. And I'm thankful that God used not the disobedience of Jerry Hemming to impact my life, but the willing obedience there's a man named Charles Humpson. About a year ago, he passed away, 92 years old. He was a founding elder of Hope Community Church, which is my home church and the church that my father is a pastor of. Charles is a man with immense amount of wisdom, immense amount of generosity, and in fact, prayed for Commonwealth City Church every day that it existed when he was still alive. He's a man that I am blessed to know, not because God used him in spite of his disobedience, but because God used him because of his obedience. My papaw, Theodore Stephen Wynn Jr., Teddy Wynn, prays every single morning, he's 91 years old, for a list that includes hundreds of people, excited to write down the next number on the list. In fact, he calls me, or when he sees me, um, he wants to know the people that I'm connected to on that list, how they're doing, where they are. One, well, I remember he was here at a service, one of the last services that he was able to get out and be here at Commonwealth. He was sitting right over here, and we commissioned a young lady named Hannah to go serve in Portugal as a missionary for two years. And every single time he sees me, he wants to know how Hannah's doing because he wants to know if his prayers are being effective in the kingdom of God. I'm grateful for my granddad, my papaw, not because we're related, but because of his willing obedience. Blessed are those that don't run from the call of God. I would encourage you to want to be those people, but I would also encourage you to recognize those people in your life. There are people that God has sent to you and they said yes to the call of God and your life is different because of it. It's the way they loved you. It's the way they bestowed hospitality on you. It's the way they've prayed for you. It's the way they've met you with a commitment to the gospel and the way that they speak and act and, and love those around them. It's a way that they have reminded you of the message we have evangelistically and who Jesus is. If you can make a list of those people, then do one step further and thank them. Thank the Lord for them and thank them. In fact, that's your homework since we're on a college campus. That's your homework. Make a list of the people whose willing obedience have absolutely blessed and impacted your life and thank them this week. Send them a note, send them a text, send them a phone call, shoot them an email and let them know that your life was made better because they didn't run from the call of God and it impacted 
even you. I got to see that this week personally in my life. I got to be a part of a pretty humbling experience. I'm in a leadership cohort in town with a, with a group of, of ministry leaders um, from all backgrounds and all walks of life. In fact, it's purposefully made up to be a balance between um, some leaders that are African-American, some leaders that are, that are Anglo. And we were together in a Zoom call, and I got to see public confession and repentance happen, not just with me, but with pastors that have been pastoring their churches longer than I have been living I got to see them confess and repent and ask for forgiveness for one another. And I got to see pastors over Zoom um, weep and cry so much that they were like hiding the camera. It was like ugly face crying. Like they didn't, it was, you know, they could see themselves ugly face crying. And it's like, I don't want to see it. Um, but it was a beautiful display of like what happens when people are obedient and people love each other. It was a beautiful display when we say, because of our understanding of grace, Wait till you get to meet dad. Let me show you what dad looks like. Let me show you what God's family looks like. And if you have people in your life that have been faithful to display what, the, what dad's character is, heavenly dad's real character is, thank him. Talk to him. Pray for him. Thank the Lord for him. And so we have this understanding of a grace that's supposed to sin for us, understanding grace and wrath. And we have this understanding of a, of a grace that's still sovereign, that it's able to overcompensate even for our disobedience. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate obedience. And so the final thing we're going to do today as we close out is how are you going to respond when the word of the Lord shows up to you? And I don't want to act like that it's showing up to you because I'm a mouthpiece of God here on Sunday morning. No, no, no. I don't mean that. I mean, when the spirit of God moves your heart for something, how are you going to respond? Now, he can meet with you here, but he could certainly meet with you in your car. He can meet with you in your room. He can meet with you uh, at some other, you know, Christian event. He can meet with you in a, in, on your couch at your house. He can meet with you anywhere. And so when he meets with you, when the word of the Lord comes to you, how do you respond? How has the Lord come to you today even? Now, I don't want to, the goal from this sermon is not for you to hear, oh, you did a good job. I mean, I appreciate that and want to humbly accept that if that's something anyone ever thinks. But I want to hear answers to questions like this. What has the grace of God made you ponder? What's the word of the Lord made you ponder? What has his word made you investigate or discover today? How has it made you consider your understanding of grace? From what depth you've been saved how has it made you to consider the places that you long for grace to be extended? Can you do that? When you look at the city of Lexington, does your heart say, man, I want, I want people to know grace there. When you look at the world as a country, does your heart explode for a specific country of like, I want the people, of, people to know grace there. I know I'm a church planner at heart. When I go to major cities in the United States, I always pull up demographic studies and I will purposefully take a subway or a taxi or an Uber to the most crime infested impoverished places in major cities and I will just walk and pray because I want grace to be known there. That's what my heart is. I want grace to be known there. I do that when I'm in, I mean, Kurt probably gets bored. Like I'll be in Chicago and I'm like, there's like 11 million people within 50 miles that don't know Jesus right now. You know, and like I'm talking about all these demographics for neighborhoods and like where Whole Foods won't move in and stuff like that, you know, and I get all fired up about it. And my heart explodes because I want grace to be extended there. But then I also have to deal with this question. Does, how has the word of the Lord made you deal with places where you actually hope grace is withheld? That people get what they deserve because it'll make you deal with both. Where do you want to see it extended? And where does your heart struggle to see it extended? How has his word met with you? What has it reminded you of? 
His word always produces activity in us. So if you're hearing the word of the Lord, whether today or in your personal time with Jesus, what's your next obedient step? Sometimes as young people, we get all frustrated because we don't know what a hundred steps down the road hold. Your responsibility to follow Jesus is not to worry about what's 100 steps down the road. Take the next obedient step and trust the sovereign God to direct those paths. If you will always take the next obedient step, you will end up exactly where God intends for you to be. So don't worry about what's 100 steps down the road. What's the next one? Hear and obey. Hear and follow. How can you show the world what your dad looks like? How are you a chip off the old block in the world we live in? Are, you, are there people in your life that you're supposed to be present with and extend grace to right now? Who's someone in your life that you have the hardest time extending grace to and maybe they keep coming up to your heart for a reason? Just like Jonah, I'm going to f- finish with these two, two questions. Where is grace sending you in response to the word of the Lord? But also how is grace sending you? And I'll tell you my prayer for how grace sends us is to be people that are grateful, to be people that understand how grace impacted us, how far we were, how dead and, and uh, you know, just wrecked by sin and shame we were and how far grace reached to save even us. Before we can ever go, we have to realize how it's been sent to us. So how is grace sending you and where is grace sending you? And may we be like Jonah and choose obedience. Maybe be unlike Jonah, actually, and choose obedience um, the easy way in response to understanding the grace of our King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the truth in this story. God, I just pray for us today. I pray for our hearts. I pray that you teach our hearts um, what it means to understand how your grace came to save us. I pray if there are people that we have a hard time We have a hard time wanting grace to be extended for. God, I pray that you soften our hearts. I pray that you teach us a greater truth, a greater word about who you are to us, how far we were from you. God, I pray that you just lead us to repentance in that. Lord, I pray that you lead lead our hearts to be reminded of the people that have said yes to your call and have impacted our lives and impacted your kingdom. May we be grateful and thankful people. Jesus, may we we be what I think your desire was for Jonah. May we be people that hear your word, that recognize your presence, and that follow in obedience so that grace may be extended and your glory may be made known, not just among ourselves, but to every nation in the world. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. 